This is Radiance Tape Number, JD59, recorded on February 3rd, 1974. A message by Jim Durkin, entitled, What is Religion? Now, primarily this morning, my message is going to be, What is Religion? What is religion? Is it a good word? Well, the Bible uses it. Therefore, it really must be a good word. See, men have twisted it off. Men have made it a bad word. But God used it. It was a good word, or at least the translators did. And it properly expresses something. Religion. But for 2,000 years, the church that was established by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross had a command to do something. And in 2,000 years, that has not really been accomplished in any real sense at all. It just has not been done. It is true that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has made great strides in some countries and large numbers of people have been saved. But partly the reason for the failure is they never really understood what Jesus told them to do. They didn't really understand it. Now, I preached on the purpose, and there are tapes on that, and if you need to know about that, go back and get those tapes on the purpose of God and the vision of God. I won't cover that too much this morning. But the church never really understood what Jesus told them. So not understanding what he said, or not being willing to simply do what he told them to do, they simply had to fall back on other devices. Something that they could dream up or something they could create out of their own minds or some lesser part of what the Lord told them to do. So, therefore, they lost their power, their zeal, their enthusiasm, and the only thing they could ultimately do is turn back in to some self-contained organism that would kind of keep itself happy until they either died or hopefully the Lord would come. Well, for 2,000 years the Lord has not come, though generation after generation has believed that maybe he would in their generation. We certainly believe it, and we certainly have evidence to believe it more than any generation has ever had that's been before us. And yet I tell you this, there's one principle the Lord has shown me, and that's this principle. We must live as though Christ were coming today, and certainly this might well be the day. In spite of any understanding that I may seem to give you that I believe this is going to happen and that, in my mind, I'm always looking for his coming. But the second thing is a just as valid a principle. We must build and lay down the foundations for the next generation. See, if we only say, well, the Lord's coming this generation, so nothing matters except to just get it done and somewhere, maybe right tomorrow he's going to come, so let's not take any time to build anything. Let's not take any time to really get with what the Lord told us to do because he's going to come right away and there's not time. There can be no greater error than that one. See? And the church, believe me, the devil rarely attempts, because he's had long enough to see that it isn't going to work, the devil rarely attempts to walk up to you if you know the Lord and say, you don't know the Lord, he's not real, just backslide. Say, oh no, I know, that's a devil. You know that. You don't get fooled with that. Not very often, unless you're all blown out and bitter and you've allowed something bad to come into your heart. You know that. But he doesn't try to do that. He tries to simply get us away from this beautiful balance that the Word of God has created for us. And it's a dynamic balance, not a static balance. You know what a static balance is? Standing still. See, when you're static, I'm statically balanced now. I'm standing still, and I get myself balanced so that I'm pretty well straight up and down, and then I can stand there for quite a time. But dynamic balance, at least from a walking point of view, is deliberately created when you deliberately throw yourself off balance. Now here I'm balanced, and I deliberately throw myself off balance by putting a foot forward and leaning into that motion. And I start to fall. Now the point is, I start to fall. I'm off balance. Now, the minute that I'm off balance, however... A marvelous thing begins to take place if I'm doing the walking the way God told me to do it. The minute that I start to fall, 
I've got a foot out in front of me, and immediately I'm balanced again. Now then, I throw my foot forward, and I'm unbalanced again, and my body is swaying back and forth off the point of balance. I'm moving forward continually off the point of balance, and yet you watch a person who really knows how to walk, and you just see them walk and say, what a beautiful balance they've got. Look at that. Now, they're continually off balance, and yet they're perfectly balanced and moving along toward the point that they want to go toward. Now, what the devil's idea is, is not to tell you to stop walking, or not to tell you to give up walking altogether. Say, walking isn't good for you, give it up, just spend your time standing in one spot, never move. He doesn't tell you that. He tries to get you off balance without the opposite foot coming to catch you, so that you just get way over here, or way over here, and the only thing you can do when you get off balance far enough is what? Fall down. Now, that's what the devil is aiming at with the church. To simply take and get us to get so far off balance one way or the other that we're not doing what the Lord told us to do, which is to walk, go, do. See? Now, what is religion? Well, if you turn with me to the book of James, the first chapter, there's a definition. Now, sometimes when I ask people what faith is, I used to ask them this, and they say, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I would say, that's good. What does that mean? And they'd say, what? What? Like, that was supposed to be the answer. We all knew that in religion. That was the answer. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Say, that's nice. What's that mean? Well, I don't know what that means. Like, you're not supposed to ask a question like that. You asked the first question, I gave you the stereotyped answer, now you got it. Now you ask me another question, I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that what God wants us to do is ask questions of our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, what does that mean? And he'll teach us. Jesus said, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to understand them yet. But I'll send to you the Spirit of truth, and he will teach you, and he will guide you into all truth. Guide me into it. Well, to guide me means what? I'm walking, right? And he's saying, come on over this way, Jim. You're going off the wrong way. I said, well, you mean isn't it? No, come on now, come on. No, too far. No, 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 too far. And people watch me walking out and say, what's the matter? What kind of Christianity is that? I like the kind of Christianity you can keep an eye on. Brother, I hope my kind of Christianity that we begin to manifest, nobody can keep an eye on it because we're moving so fast. Zoom like that, see. Hallelujah. Say, where'd they go? See, hallelujah. Now, the Lord is trying to say something to us here about what religion is. But if we're not careful, we'll read this, and now we got an answer. See, what is religion? All right, here it is. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. All right, there you got it now, right? See, isn't that easy? Now, you don't ever have to think about that anymore. You now know what faith is. Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what is religion? It is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Good. Now we'll put that aside. Now give me some more religion. See, I want more knowledge now. See? All right, now, if you want, I can take the Word of God and teach you. I don't think it would take more than six months, although I could extend it out to three years if I really wanted to do a trip with a lot of other things as well. But I could take in six months and give you all the stereotyped answers you need to answer anybody on any subject that this Bible touches. Any major subject. Now, there might be some little tiny detail thing that they would ask you, like who was the first one that created musical instruments. You have to go read that for yourself or something back in the book of Genesis. I think his name was Tubal Cain or something like that. In any event... I'm talking about the major subjects. What is religion? What is faith? What is justification? What is salvation? What is healing? What is... And you'll have... Boom! You've got a scripture for it. Now, in six months then, I could turn you out a completely finished product. And that word finished would describe you exactly. 
you would have a stereotyped answer for everything. And you would then, for the rest of your life, never have to think about anything. You would be brought to a place of marvelous balance, static balance. You'd stand in one spot the rest of your lives and wait for somebody to ask you a question. Here I am. I'm full of answers. The Apostle James Durkin gave it to me back in 1974, and this is 1994, and I'm still waiting for somebody to ask me a question. Look at that world out there. It's all full of sin and darkness, and if they would just come to me, I would have the answer for them. No, I've not tried to give you that kind of answer. It would be so easy to do it. And you would be deceived into thinking that you now knew what Jesus was talking about. And you wouldn't have the foggiest notion of what the Lord is saying. Because he isn't saying things like that. What is pure religion and undefiled? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Does it mean like he goes this way and I go that way? Well, in a sense it means that. Or does it mean that he says certain things and I say certain things? Well, yes, it means that. But it's deeper than that. Pure religion and undefiled means expressing, acting out, manifesting through the world the very nature, the very life, the very spirit, of God the Father in this world. It isn't merely the doing of something. Now I know what pure religion and undefiled is. It means to go and visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. If you take that simply in its just sterile sense and don't understand the spirit behind it, the life behind it, then we can very quickly create an organization dedicated to visiting the fatherless and the widows. And we would then get the organizational mind to get the newspapers and the obituary columns. We would get them all and we'd have it. And we'd say, uh, uh, let's go to the city of New York because they have the most people that are dying there, Los Angeles or Bombay. All right, now, here's the obituary column. And we've got our 35 people that are all prepared for the city of Bombay. We're going to do a religious trip now, just exactly what Jesus says. All right, here's the obituary column. Here's five for you, five for you, five for you, five for you. This is the Father's We come and... Uh, Knock on the door. Hello, my name is James Durkin, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm here to visit the fathers and the widows in their affliction and to keep myself unspotted from the world. Walk in there and hear somebody doing a trip that you don't like. Lord, keep me, keep me. That's right. And pretty soon you wouldn't want to visit those people in Bombay anymore. We've got to get to a cleaner place. Hallelujah. Oh, finally, we come into a fine American home. Now, I tell you, there may be adultery going on in there. There may be lying, cheating, stealing, murder, every rotten thing that you can think of. But it's a clean, beautiful house. And as you come in, they smile and say, Are you the religious man? Yes. Ah. Come in, Joseph, here's the religious man I was telling you. Oh, is that right? Well, welcome to our home. Yes, where is the fatherless person and the widow? They're upstairs in the master suite. Oh, I'll go see them in the master suite. <laughs> now, isn't it wonderful? We're doing a religious trip. Now we got our organization going, see? Now, you know, you know... That isn't what Jesus was talking about, is it? He was talking about something in the Spirit that would manifest itself this way. He was talking about a love so great and so intense. A compassion is the word used in the Bible. Heal the sick? Why? Raise the dead? Why? Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction? Why? Why did Jesus do it? We should be willing to lay down our lives for our friends, the Bible says. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Jesus did that. 
He said, you're my friend. If you do whatsoever I tell you, he laid down his life for us. Why? Because it's a religious practice. We've got a new organization now, laying down our lives for our friends. Let's visit the affliction, the fatherless and the widows. That's organization A over there. We see something different. We're going to lay down our lives for our friends. So we run around, how can I lay down my life for my friend and this and that. All of that stuff, folks, is nothing. Unless you understand what made Jesus do what he did. What made the Father do what he did? And that word is compassion. I can't love you. I can't even love myself. In the natural, I hate myself, and rightly so. Because I tell you the truth, though no man ever hated his own flesh, he does hate his own spirit and soul at times. Because on the inside, he is completely rotten. And he knows it. And he hides himself from himself, and he certainly hides himself from his friends and his neighbors, because he never wants them to see what he really is like. Never wants them to see that. So he learns to put on a charming exterior. He learns how to put on a beautiful front. The best he can do isn't always so hot, but it's the best he knows how to do. Some are better than others. But deep down inside is that real man, that real woman, which none of us are able to stand. And it's only the mercy of God that we don't have to really see ourselves as we are because we could not stand ourselves. We certainly would perish from the face of the earth. Paul understood it. He said, that is in me, in my flesh, there dwelleth what? No good thing. Can you imagine looking into something where there was not one good thing at all? Just darkness and evil. First chapter of the book of Romans expresses our nature without Christ. And it's a hideous thing to look at it. I was offended when I first read Offended at God. When I read it, I didn't like it. And I said to God, I never did those things. Until he revealed to me that in the human heart, without Christ, without Jesus, all of the potentiality of Romans 1 and Romans 3 are laying there just waiting for the right pressure to be applied. And then, boom, it just breaks out of us, this venom and vileness and rottenness. Be thankful to God that most of you he has kept from the real rottenness that was in your heart and could have manifested itself. Now, why did he do that? Why did he leave his sinless heaven for it was purged of sin when the devil sinned and his angels had sinned with him they were cast out and heaven again is a spotless place why did he leave it why did he come down here why did God let him do it the word is compassion compassion he was moved with compassion. They didn't do it out of religious duty, didn't do it out of some kind of religious practice. This is what our organization does. We do this, we do this, we do this. I'm going to talk about doing. That's a very important part of our religion, though. But that isn't why he did it. That's what he did. He did something. Now, why did he do it? Because he was moved with compassion. Now, here I am. He said, when I found thee, thou wast altogether polluted. That's where I was. Rotten through and through. In my flesh there dwelt no good thing. Every thought of my mind was evil continually from my youth. Deep in my spirit, my soul was locked up a man that I dared not to look at. It would have killed me. I would have died had I seen myself as I was. And he looked on me, this filthy, dirty, worthless individual. And the only thing I can tell you is he was moved with compassion and moved with love. And he said, that man, James Durkin, who isn't even born yet, because that's thousands of years off to be born in terms of time. 
that man is worth saving. As is every man and woman on the face of the earth. And I love them. And I want to give myself for them. And I'm ready to leave this place. This wonderful fellowship with the Father. This wonderful fellowship with the unspotted angels. This wonderful fellowship where all is in harmony. And I'm willing to leave and go to that discordant, messed up, rotten world. Filled with sin. And I'm ready to go down there because I love those people. I have compassion. And I'm ready to die that they might live. Compassion is the word. And the Father, because it was his plan really, was moved with the same compassion. Now some people have the idea that God the Father is sitting up there like a stern judge. He is that. And he is a righteous judge. And he will judge this world. The Bible says he'll lay it to a plumb line. There will be none that will escape in that day. But that doesn't change his compassion and mercy because at one part of his life or his existence he must act as a judge to judge evil doing. But I can tell you right now what moved him was compassion. And though he yearned over his son, desired him to be with him at all times, the plan even before the foundation of the world, if you can understand how this could be, I don't understand this. I do a little bit maybe, just as a human. I know that a mother can love a child before it's ever born, just when it's in her womb and it's growing. At first, she's not so aware of that. She knows she's to be a mother, not so aware. And then one day, she can feel a little bit of life in the womb, and she becomes aware that a living person is going to come into the world, that she is carrying that child, and she begins to love it. Somewhere along the time, six, seven, eight, nine months, the father also becomes aware that his child is going to come into the world, and there begins to spring up in his heart a love, in her heart a love, for that which does not even exist yet. Yet. Now, compassion. I wasn't even born. You weren't born. Thousands of years would pass before we were born. And yet the Bible says that Jesus saw the travail. Travail. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You're the result of that travail. He loved you. He yearned over you. Compassion. Now, when his nature came into us, me, I'll take myself as the example here. Here's this utterly rotten individual. I don't know how you've ever thought of yourself. Maybe you thought of yourself as a pretty mellow guy or kind of a sweet girl. You never really have done too much bad to people. I'm glad that you haven't. I'm glad that God kept you from it. I'm glad that in his yearning mercy over you, for the most part, he kept you from really doing any super bad things, although some of you got into some pretty heavy stuff too, and I did myself. But if you can understand that in yourself there dwelt no good thing, nothing. No compassion, human love to be sure. You can relate to other humans if they made you feel good or if you liked what you saw. You can relate to them on that. But not compassion. Because compassion permits you to love the utterly worthless. Permits you to love the utterly evil. Permits you to love the utterly wrong, ungodly. It doesn't matter. You still love and you're moved with compassion toward them. And even when they don't want you, it doesn't make any difference. You're still moved with compassion to keep on doing what is urged upon you from the inside of yourself. And that isn't you and it isn't me. And yet it is me and it is you. But what is it that moves us that way if that compassion has begun to function within us? It is the nature, it is the person, it is the Lord himself. His nature has come into us and we're moved with compassion to go and do what we have to do. And I tell you, when we go to visit the fatherless and the widows, it's not a sterile, dead, dry thing. We begin to feel the pain of what they feel. 
and the hurt of what they feel and the loneliness of what they feel, then we can relate to them. I listened to the brothers talking about the people down in Mexico. I'm glad to hear our brothers talk about their utter feelings of total bankruptcy. You know, you're raised in the, the West Coast, let's say, or you come out here and you fall in with a groovy little lifestyle that's out here and you go to college and you do that trip and, and you try some drugs. Maybe you're into them heavy, maybe you're into them light. That isn't the point, but at least you've done it once or twice anyhow or a few times more. Maybe you are totally addicted. But you can always relate after that. See? Say, yeah, man, I was on drugs too and Jesus got, wow, is that right, man? Here, Sometimes we're just relating on the surface. And then the Lord puts you in some place where a man or a woman is an entirely different generation or lifestyle or background, and you come up to them and you say, Yeah, man, and then I was on the sea of drugs. And they just look at you like, Where are you at, man? I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, uh, well, let me study where you were from, man. So we get some books out. Let's see the older generation now. They, they were really after uh, making a buck. Yeah, that was the thing there. And they're in the booze. Yeah, I got that now. Okay. Uh, ha, ha, now, man. Uh, yes, uh, when I was uh, a few years ago, I was into making a buck, and I was into booze, and I was into... Maybe you can get away with that with one generation difference. But I'm going to tell you something. When you walk to some of these people, that there's no way whatever you can relate to them. Because there's no experience in your life like the ones they've gone through. Then you don't have anything to say to them at all. You see, Jesus could not relate to us on the basis of experience. He couldn't come and say, yeah, I was into drugs, I was into booze, I was into money, I was into... He could never say that, and yet... People by the thousands came to hear him. And those who told his story moved generations of people. But he never related to us on the basis of his experience relating with ours. You know how he related to us? On the basis of compassion. And that bridged the gap between every generation and every culture and every people and every language. Compassion reached out across time and eternity. That's what must be in your heart. Pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows. Why? Because you're moved with compassion. And to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Why? Because you're so filled with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that these things have no more place in your life, whatever. You don't want them. They are utterly nothing. Because you look at a world and you see them in those things and you say, oh God, help me, help me to tell the story of Jesus to them in such a way that they'll no longer want these things either. See, it isn't a, it isn't a sterile religion where only people who have strong will can do it. There are people who keep themselves unspotted from the world because they've got willpower. And they say, I've made up my mind. I'll never drink another drop of whiskey as long as the sun rises and the moon shines and so forth and so on. And they've got willpower. And you get a church full of those people and I'll tell you, you've got something that is pretty hard to endure. They're all walking along. Now we're going to sing song number 177. Sing it with joy because we've got the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's willpower. Oh, you've got plenty of churches like that. And they're so self-righteous that you can only belong to their elite club if you can hold your breath four minutes underwater and then come up and say, see what I did there, see? No, Jesus is not building a club of people who happen to have strong wills. You know what he's building out of? He says, the poor of this world, rich in faith. The off-scouring, the people without answers, the ones that didn't know where they were going. He said, the righteous, they don't need any forgiveness. Oh, they did. But he said, I haven't come to seek the righteous. What did he come to? The sinners. You a sinner? Have you been before Jesus? 
See, that's the point. Now, the reason why the Lord has been able to do a work in my life, now I'll tell you, for the first 12 or 13 years of my life, He couldn't do much for me. Because I spent my time telling Him I never really was a bad person. And then, the Lord took everything away from me. My home, my money that I yearned after, and my health that I needed to get the other things that I thought I wanted. He took it all away. And he took me back into the book, told me he was going to teach me. And he did. And the only good thing that was in me was the new nature that he had put there. And it was only because of Jesus and his compassion and his love that that was there. And therefore, any basis that I ever came to God on was to be one basis alone. And that was what Jesus had done and what Jesus had given and how Jesus had loved. And to come to him on no other basis because he never would hear me. And I'll tell you, when I submitted to that understanding, all my defenses were gone. I didn't have any more. I didn't have anything to defend. Nothing to defend. When a person come up to me and say, I think you're rotten, Sometimes I made a humorous remark, but I'm trying to be as serious as I can this morning. They come up to me and say, I think you're rotten. I could look at them and say, you're right. You're right. I think you're... You're right. And I'll tell you something. You try that sometime instead of defending yourself when you're attacked. And you watch people get completely blown out by it. They're waiting for your, you're rotten. I am not. I'll tell you, I'll Now they're ready for that. Boy, they say, here's a good argument. I'll prove you're rotten. How about this and that? They come and say, you're rotten. You say, I want to tell you something. You're absolutely right. That's right. Then you have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. But if you're trying to prove how good you are, Jesus will seem less good by comparison. See, here we're trying to say he is the bright morning star. He's the lily of the valley. He's everything. But then we don't say that. First of all, we say, well, I'm going to tell you about Jesus in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to tell you about me. Uh, I'm really not so bad. Oh, you're not so bad. No. As a matter of fact, really, I'm pretty good. See, I'm getting to shine my light now. He's shining. And I keep telling you, yes, yes, I had a high IQ in school, and I got good grades, and I always set up when the teacher told me to, and I paid attention, and this and that and the other. And finally, we build it up. And the guy, when you're doing that, he's building himself up with you, too. So he said, yeah, me, too, me, too, me, too. Because he's got his list of good things. He can rattle off anytime he wants about what a nice guy he is. And then you get up there, and you say, now, us two nice guys understand each other, right? We're both swell guys, yeah. What you need is Jesus. You know what his answer to you is? Why? I'm a nice guy. But when you start out by telling him that in you, you don't say to him, listen, buddy, in you, you're rotten. No, you don't do that. You start off with yourself and say, I want to tell you about me. I have come to realize that what the Bible says about me as a human is absolutely true. And you take the Word of God and show him what the Bible says about you and say, I know that's true. I didn't know it always, but I know it's true. I knew that deep down inside me were some pretty bad, terrible things that I thought, that I did, that I yearned after, pretty evil. And then you began to tell him about the rottenness that existed in you. And how you finally came to the end of yourself and you were totally bankrupt. And you came to Jesus and said, Lord, you're perfect and holy and good. And yet, you came down and you were tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. You suffered the pangs of temptation. You knew what it meant to be hungry. You knew what it meant to be cold. You know what it meant to be tempted. And yet, in all of those things, though you, you entered in so that you might become a merciful and faithful high priest... You never committed sin, but you understand the pain that I feel. And you ask Jesus to come into your heart, and he came in, and he changed your entire life and made you a new creation. You tell him that's what happened to me.
And that's what can happen to you. I love you, and Jesus loves you. Now I'll tell you something. You won't find very many people trying to defend themselves when you've let yours down. But you see, when you try to prove to people what a good religious person you are, you see, I'm living the good life. If you mean that you're letting Jesus live through you, that's a proper statement. If you mean that by your behavior, you're better than somebody else, that's no way to approach a person to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Now, let's ask ourselves a second question. See, we've talked about the motivation. The motivation that I must understand is that I myself have nothing within myself to boast about or glory about. If I win a person to Christ, I cannot thereby say, see what I did, because it was the Spirit of God in me who spoke through me to that person, and that was by His grace. I will never have anything to boast about to God. The Bible says if you could earn your heaven by works, you'd have something to boast about before God. But you're not going to be able to do it, therefore no flesh is going to boast in His sight. So you don't have anything to boast about before God. Or if you try to prove to people what a, a righteous person you are. And we sometimes do that in our testimony means We get up and say, look at me, I've been a good boy all week now, and I'm doing such nice things and this and that, and everyone... You've got to understand that anything you ever do, and this must be your attitude of heart, anything you ever do is a result of one of two things. God having prepared you to do something, in other words, by some prior experiences that he let you go through, and therefore he taught you a lesson. Or number two, God having shown you something after you were saved, and he's teaching you how to do it. So all of the glory and all of the credit must belong to him. You must utterly surrender yourself to that idea. Now we come to the second part. We've talked about the motivation, which is that compassion in me that he has placed there. It's nothing I can claim credit for. It's something that he has done. But the second part is this. Right now, I'm sure there's very few people that are here that would disagree with anything I said. You've heard it. You say, well, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right on, because I know that's what the word is. You'd have a little trouble. Maybe there's a few of you having trouble when I talked about us being utterly bad. Some of the old, the old ideas are, oh, no, man, nobody's really bad. We're just a little, mis you know, we have a little miscalculations or misunderstanding. No, the Bible says we're wicked. That's what it teaches. I believe that. I've utterly come to accept that position because God says it's true. And when I did, I tell you, I was free, and the compassion of God began to operate in my life. Now, the second thing is, though, and here's what we're tempted to do. We are tempted to merely accept, because the minute that we take the position that I've just spoken here, and we start to let that work out in our lives we're going to run up against the fact that that badness of nature, though when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're utterly dead to that old nature. Let me give you an illustration of how this deadness is. Let's say you have a tree growing here, and it's a beautiful green tree. And you come along to that tree, and for about a foot or two foot, you strip the bark off and tear into the cambium of the outer layer, and you completely remove it. So there's no more possibility of water coming and nutrition coming from the ground up to the tree. Now, there's still some sap in that tree that hasn't been taken up yet. It's going to be worked up those layers. It's going to take a few more days to do that. But after that's done, if you have a knowledgeable man, and he understands that that bark has been taken off and that outer layer has been taken off, he would look at that tree and say, that tree is dead. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about you. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and given your life to him, the Bible says you're dead indeed unto sin. And your life is hid with Christ in God. No question of it. It's the only thing the Scripture ever does say. But there's a seeming paradox that now works. It's just like that tree. If you were not knowledgeable and you didn't see, see, and the only way you can see that a person is dead to sin is by what the Word of God says, because you're not going to be able to see somebody stripped off the bark on their legs. or something. You're not going to be able to do nothing like that. You're looking at the same human being outside. He looks the same. He acts the same, except in some different ways he's a little bit different. But I mean, if he's left-handed, he's still left-handed. If he writes with his right hand, he still writes with his right hand. Nothing different that way. 
But the knowledgeable person saying that person has given their life to Jesus Christ would be able to say, based on what the Word teaches, he's dead to sin. But if you stop there, you run into a paradox. Because the man may keep right on committing some sins. As a matter of fact, he may be pretty heavy into it for a while until he's taught and instructed and led and guided. So he lays those things aside. But if you look at that tree from an unknowledgeable point of view, and let's say that bark was covered so you didn't see it was gone, you'd say, what a beautiful tree, how live it is. Look at the life, the vitality. But the knowledgeable person would say, no, it's dead. And that tree is dead, just like you're dead indeed under sin, but alive in the God through Jesus Christ, your Lord. But now, the minute that you start to work out that nature that is now in you, so that it begins to overcome the habits of a lifetime, a filthy mouth, a mind that runs quickly toward evil constructions about people. You see some person, I don't like that person because they've got that kind of a face that I always know. They've got a deceptive look in their... See? Natural evil speaking about your neighbor. Mouth that's quick to judge. A brain that calculates all the odds and evils. So what do I get out of this? Your lifetime has been spent developing those habits. And they're still doing their thing. See, I want to do my, my little thing and I'm... See, it's just like... Now, that nature's in you. That bark has been cut. Dead to sin as a reality. But here the flesh is doing its... And the little computer brain is just flitting around and doing its same thing. And now there begins to come a conflict. Because now the Spirit of God moves against one of those habits. And boy, there's pain. You know, well, I don't see why I can't do this. And boy, I tell you, this is pushing me. And I don't like this kind of stuff. And, see? and the Spirit of God says, stop that. Uh, 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 must be all right. Then we start justifying it. Well, it's all right because we're all human. You see, this, that, and the other thing. And stop that. Well, I, I, stop that. I, I, stop it. All right, Lord. Amen. And that drops off. You said you feel, oh, I feel so wonderful. Oh, that dirty old thing had me all these years. Thank you, Jesus. Do some more. Okay, he says. <laughs> That's right. Because you're not aware of this one over here. See? Now, someone else who maybe has been through it before you, they look at it, hear this thing going on, and they say, uh, Jim, yes? Your left hand is shaking. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. You must stop that. No, I don't see anything. Where's my left hand? It's not shaking. I don't see a thing. No. No, I don't see it. Where? Where? See? And then someone says, Oh, it is, isn't it? Yes. Stop that. Oh, there's nothing wrong with the left hand shaking. If I want my left hand to shake, but, and we go through this routine all over again. Now, the working out of this pure religion and undefiled, that's painful. And God never lets up, deals with us, works with us, applies the pressure and backs off for a little bit then applies a squeeze all the more, and we feel like we are literally going to be crushed under the load. And then he lets off the crushing and starts to push from the inside out, and we feel we're going to explode from the inside. Stop that. Stop that. Begin to do this. See, it's a working out of this dead indeed on a sin. On the one hand, he's telling you something not to do anymore. On the other hand, he's saying, begin to do this. And I'm going to tell you, it's just as hard to begin to do this as it is to quit doing this. And God deals and deals and deals and deals and deals and deals. And we think we're going to die. And we would die if it were not for his compassionate mercy that keeps sustaining us. But he's turning us. Turning us. 
into manifested sons and daughters of the living God that the world can look at and say, these people have been with Jesus because they manifest his character, his nature, his life, his compassion, his everything. Now, Jesus was talking to his disciples. I give you a couple of scriptures to ponder here. You'll find this one in Matthew, and it's in Matthew, the seventh chapter. And verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Now, that's the difference, see? This pain that comes down on us as Christians, we get tired of it after a while. I get tired of it. I get so tired of it, sometimes I can hardly stand it. Just going to be honest with you, as I know how to be. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now, 24, 25, 26 years. And there's still things that God's dealing with me on. I'm as dead to sin today as I was 25 years ago when he saved me. But the working out of that perfection, the manifestation of that glory, is just that he's not dealing with me on don't take drugs anymore, or don't smoke cigarettes, or don't uh, drink whiskey. Not dealing with me on that, because he dealt with that a long time ago. That's long gone. I don't do that. Rarely anymore do I have an outburst of temper. Last time was seven, eight, nine years ago, I guess. And that had been the first one in four, five, or six years, seven. And that came on me so suddenly I just went home and had to think about what had actually happened. I just, I, I couldn't understand what took place in my life. I was doing a job for a client, and uh, Ron will tell you all the things, but a guy come out and insulted me and then hit me with his elbow like this in the chest, just, and I don't know what happened. Just suddenly, the guy went through the door, I was on top of him in the house, and my fist was drawn back, he's on the floor, and I was just going to... And I stood there looking at him like that, and the fear was on his face, and I looked at myself, and I said, Father, what happened? And I had to go home and think about it, and I'll tell you what happened, or at least this is the way I see it now. Maybe all wrong, but I'm going to tell you the way it is. I think God was showing me that after five or six years, my only hope of walking it straight is just to keep depending on the Lord Jesus Christ every minute of my life. The fact that I hadn't lost my temper for five years or four years has got nothing to do with me just blowing it five seconds from now and just tearing this place apart. And just The only way I'm sustained is by the life of Jesus Christ in me every minute. And he just continually keeps me walking. And he's going to do that throughout all eternity. Isn't that wonderful? He, he is my assurance. I am in myself. I have no assurance of anything tomorrow. I wouldn't trust myself. I don't trust myself at all. I've never trusted myself in the last 15 years. But I have great confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to keep me and to watch over me and to guide me, see? Now, the first 12 or 13 years of my Christian experience, I trusted myself. I said, well, I've got this good intellect and I've got a good education. I can read the Bible, know what it says, and I'm up here to be a teacher of the people and this and that and the other thing. And then I fell. And brother, when I fell, and sister, when I fell, it was a fall. It lasted two or three years, just utterly destroyed me in every part of my being, so I had no confidence left at all in anything. And now I have confidence left only in one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ to keep me and to sustain me day by day, see? So now I say he's not dealing with me on those areas anymore. My trust is in him. Lord, keep me in those areas. But I want you to know it's just as painful when God begins dealing with me on certain subjects, certain areas of my life where habits that were formed 40 years ago are still manifesting themselves. And God is saying to me now, after being 25 years in the Lord, stop that. Oh, God! And it's just as painful now, 25 years later, as it was when I was first saved. And I know what you're going through. Brother, sister, sometimes you get to the point in this ministry when the brothers are dealing with you, and the sisters are dealing with you, and the Spirit of God is dealing with you directly. Maybe it's somebody that no one knows about, just you. And God is dealing with you. And you'll say, I can't stand it. 
I just got one word to say to you. Hang in there. Hang in there. It's worth it. Hallelujah. It's worth it. And I can tell you, after 25 years of hanging in there, with the exception of about three when he really began to deal with me, I can tell you, it's worth it. Hallelujah. So here's what Jesus says. This pain, I'm going to say it in my own words, and I'm going to read it. This pain produces two kinds of people. One kind of person makes up their mind and they're not going to put up with that kind of pain. They're just flat out not going to do it. So they adjust their religion and their thinking to avoid it. You can do it. Most churches do it. As a matter of fact, the very basis upon which they are set up is to help you avoid that pain. To get in a place where you come in and you just sit and here you do your mellow trip and much of the movements that are going on today, I don't say them in a violently critical sense, but I'm speaking out against them because it's nothing but the same old can of worms served up with a different name. And it just simply is the kind of thing where you put your arms around each other and that's the whole extent of it. You want to feel the human next to you and feel the one next. Ah, oh, I feel them. Wonderful. Now sing a song. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Now that's in the meeting room. Then you go outside and you're dealing with your neighbors or your friends or on the job and some little thing goes wrong and you, Okay, meeting time over now. Sunday. Ah. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our... No! That is a phony. That's what's wrong with religion today. That's what's wrong with many churches today. Because there is no necessity to endure the pain that is necessary as God deals with us. Stop that. Don't do that anymore. Begin doing this. Oh, it hurts, Lord. Yes, it hurts. I wish it didn't hurt. I am a baby when it comes to pain. You stick me with a pin and I yell. That's all there is to it. Some people, you know, stick my pin, they, not me. You stick me with a pin, they go, oh! Because I hurt easy. And in 25 years, it hasn't gotten easier. As a matter of fact, I'm getting shy of having pins stuck in me by the Lord. But he keeps right on sticking them in there anyhow. And I'll tell you what the Bible has to say about that. It says about our Lord Jesus Christ, he learned obedience by the things which he what? Suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It says in the book of Peter, it says, they that have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. Isn't any easier today? Isn't going to be easier for you if the Lord tarries 25 years? Isn't going to be easier for you 25 years and not still going to hurt? But I'll tell you what it's done. It's made me understand one thing that I can endure pain. I'm not afraid of death anymore. I don't willingly run to pain, but I know that I can endure it. I know that I can endure the pain of the loss of all things because I've lost everything. And God gave it back. To lose it again would be nothing today. Just nothing. It has no more meaning. To suffer pain is not pleasant but I know that I can do it because I've done it. I know that I can do it because His grace is sufficient. But I also know this, in that God has taught me to endure the pain of His dealing in exact proportion as He has been able to deal with me effectively. My life has increased in value to the Lord and to the world. I want to say to you, I want you, if the Lord should tarry until all of us go by way of the grave, I want the last thought in your heart to have been, if you should lay on your final bed, that you're able to look back on a life well lived, a life full of pain, 
but mingled with a lot of joy and a lot of happiness at the people that you've seen come to Jesus, the lives you've seen transformed, the wisdom that God has spoken through you, the nature of Christ manifested in your life. I want you to be able to see that. If the Lord should come before, and I believe with all my heart that he surely will, then I want you to live every day with the consciousness of two things. That your life most days is a mingling of pain and joy. And that that pain is the result of God dealing with you, and that joy is the result of God living in you. And if you have that dual consciousness, that it is painful to walk with God, and it's joyful to walk with God. And on the one hand, every day that you walk with him and that pain is operating within you, things are being laid aside one after the other, and the life of Jesus Christ is becoming manifest more and more in your life. And the joy of God is growing greater every day. What was it our brother Gary said today? That sometimes you say the words like worm. You say worm, 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 worm. And three, four, five, six, eight, ten times it begins to sound funny. Well, you say the name, Jesus. 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 And it just, just lifts you up, see? Now, I want to close this by giving a little report. I just simply tell you what the Lord said here in Matthew 7. He said, the man that hears my sayings and does them is a wise man. And he's like a man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains come, and the winds blew, and the stream rose and beat vehemently against that house, but it could not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. Now that's the type of church that I'm talking about where you're willing to suffer the pain of God's dealing as opposed to the type of church which he describes in the next few verses when he says the foolish man is like one who built his house upon the sand. And you know what the foolish man was? The one who heard God's words, heard them, says, yeah, right on, man, and did not do them. And it says, same thing, see, the stream came, beat vehemently, the rain, flood, and it says that house fell for it was not founded upon a rock. And so all of my teaching and my preaching, my ministry has come to be one thing. Do what David told you to do. He said, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And he said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, O God. See? Now, last night, I called Los Angeles. And I talked to Dave Sapansky and Tom Peterson, some of the people that were down there. And they've gone down to that city that they all hate with a great passion. You know what made them go down there? You know what made them leave the place they loved and the people they loved? That's right, compassion. And they went and they saw that city and they said, we see a harvest field. They've been out witnessing. They've got jobs. Boss said, on this job, you shouldn't witness. They said, well, that's going to be awful hard. We don't know if we can do that. So they got hired anyhow, and they told me that some of the first ones they witnessed to was the boss. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Nancy Sapansky got hired. Boss said, well, you're a good secretary, but that's not why I'm hiring you. Well, why are you hiring me? Well, he said, my wife works here, and she's a born-again Christian, and I want her to have company. But he said, don't give me any of that stuff, because I don't believe in it. So he hired her. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And, of course, if you know Nancy Sapansky, he got the word of God right away. Hallelujah. <laughs> Sat there and talked for two hours with her about the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Two people have already been saved and have moved into the house with them, and they're saying already, isn't that wonderful? Ministry is beginning with great power down there. And I talked to Scott last night, and he said, we're going to have to do something here. He said, we're beginning to crowd things out. They've got 50 people out at Palmer, and they've got about the same number in town, and they're just growing. And he told me something which I almost laughed in a way. I, did, I didn't really laugh. Well, a little bit I did, maybe. He told me, he said, uh, Jim, the ministry already up here, he said, is uh, 100 and he said, it's costing us $4,500 a month to get by. And he said, where are we going to get all that money? 
And I told him, well, you're going to have to get it the same place we have to get ours. <laughs> the Lord's going to have to guide you. Hallelujah. And he is doing that. But I want you to pray for our brother Scott. He's undergoing some pretty heavy pressure up there. Because one of the things that we've always faced here, most of you that are just new here, you don't understand. But there's no way to run a ministry like we run it without every day being on the verge of bankruptcy. There's never a day that we're not bankrupt in this ministry. And also by the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's never a day that we don't get through and see the next day to look at it and see that we're bankrupt again. <laughs> That's the nature of this ministry. Now I'll tell you how to set it up that way and we can get out of that problem. See, we wouldn't have to have that problem. There's no problem at all. You think we've got a brother down in Los Angeles now, Richard Bellman. How many of you remember him? Do you remember him? Sure. He went out and got a job. You know how much he's getting paid an hour? Nine and a quarter an hour. Now, isn't that pretty good? See, we've got some pretty good, sharp people here. Pretty sharp people with some good educations. And even the ones that didn't have specific business educations like he did, he's got drafting and engineering background, but a little bit of training on our part, and they could all be making some pretty good money. But we set the ministry up deliberately in a way that guarantees that we will always prosper and always be divinely poor at the same time. That's the balance that I'm talking about. See, you understand what I say when I said you start to walk? See, if we were careful and just did one of these things, stood still, in other words, don't take that step that throws us off balance. Stood still, we'd prosper. Oh, would we have the money running out of our ears? And there, there are many places that do have money running out of their ears. I mean, just literally, they got money in the treasury and money just, it stacks up and they got it in the banks and they got investments and bonds and stocks and this and that. Money just tremendous. We never have any. Because we put into practice the divine balance. And we said about this ministry, whosoever will may come. We don't screen anybody, see? So somebody walks through the door and they have no talent. We don't meet them at the door of the Lighthouse Ranch or Carlotta or Living Waters or Mendocino or the in-town ministry and say, they come in and say, I hear this is a Christian place. Can I come? We say, just a minute, please. What school did you attend? <laughs> Are you able to earn a lot of money and make a living for this ministry? Are you able to pay $95 a month, which is our room and board schedule, minimum schedule, of course, that you can get? Are you able to? We don't do that. They walk on the door and say, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty, or I'd like to stay tonight, or can I come on this place? We say, welcome. Come on. See? But I tell you something, everyone that you welcome, that strains the finances. Ever thought to think about that? That strains them. Thank you, Jesus, for that strength. Hallelujah. That's what makes this ministry function. See? If we took that suffering off, if we took that pain off, this would be a sterile ministry. We send the brothers down to Los Angeles, and I tell them the ones that are going, I say, don't think it's going to be easy, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to go out and work on jobs. You're going to have to raise the money to make the way for the next 55 to come down. It's going to be heavy. And what happens? They get up and volunteer and say, I want to go. Wow. See, now if I get up there and say, I'll tell you how it's going to be, friends. Down in Los Angeles, balmy days warm sunshine and we're going to send down 5,000 a month to take care of you so that every day you'll be able to get up and go out on the sandy beaches and wander along and get your feet wet with the Pacific Ocean that's coming in there and oh it's just going to be great down there folks you know what I think I think we'd also have gotten some volunteers if that's the way we'd have built the ministry but there wouldn't be any reports like we're hearing now from all over the different places our ministries are going to and you folks that are sitting here listening to me today, i tell you what I know. I know that some of you are literally going through the meat grinder. I know that you're going through pain. I know that you're going through suffering. I know that you're confused and you don't understand what's happening to you. I know that some of you have bills you can't pay and we can't pay them either. I know that some of you have pain in your body and you get prayed for and you don't see the symptoms disappear right away. I know others of you are going through turmoil of the mind and turmoil of the spirit. I know others of you are going through a problem in your mind. Maybe you're older than some of the brothers that are elders and you say, man, I know more about life than they know and how come they're telling me something and this and that. I know that. But I have one bit of counsel to you. 
hang in there and you watch what God finally does in your life. You're going to be raised up, the life of Christ fully manifested in your life, and you're going to be of use to the Lord and to yourself and to a lost world. I wonder if you'd stand up with me. Hallelujah. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the blessedness of gathering together with brothers and sisters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing, Lord Jesus, that you're here. And blessed Father, that your presence is with us and that your spirit is operating, bringing us this compassion that we're talking about and this willingness to endure pain that our sinful natures make necessary, even though that the nature itself is gone, yet the habits remain in the flesh and the mind, and they need to be worked out, and they are, by the blessedness of your Spirit. You know how to deal with us and work with us until all of it's yielded and changed and transformed. And Father, we're thankful for your dealing with us, Lord. It changes us, brings forth the nature of Jesus Christ, it takes away from us any desire that this world can hold out to us so that it loses its power to draw us in any direction at all. It just becomes a wearisome old place in which to be. And the only important thing that remains in our life, Lord, is to do your will and to carry out your purpose upon the earth. Oh God, grant this that that shall be so in every person that is here today and every person that names your name throughout the earth, let them also see this and understand it. Let it become a divine reality. Let them, O oh Lord, be moved away from their lethargy, Lord, and their desire to create a life where there are no hassles, realizing that the very nature of our walk in the Lord Jesus is a life filled with hassles and pressures and tribulation, but out of it all the glorious victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for that, Father. Now, Lord, bless each one that was here this day, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.